Again, if you could please grab your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 6. Before we begin, let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that you've commanded your church to gather together to hear from you, to worship you, to fellowship together, to edify one another and serve one another. And now as we come before you to hear from you, would our hearts be attentive to your truth? Would our hearts receive your truth as truth? And would your spirit work to convict our hearts and to comfort and encourage our hearts? Uh, May your will be done through the preaching of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So James chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, James writes, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I've titled this message, Our Gracious God. Our Gracious God. And to give you a a quick story, uh, Hannah and I were new at a church that I was interning at while I was in seminary. And there was a young marriage group that we joined right when we got to the church. We found out there was a young marriage group that met. Uh, and so it was our first meeting with the group. And there was also another married couple that was new to the church. And they were new to that first meeting as well. They walked in a little late after Han and I had already introduced ourselves. And throughout the meeting, we noticed that this other new couple kept staring at us. And we were wondering, why did they keep looking at us? They just couldn't stop. And so right after the meeting ended, they came up to me, or us, Hannah and I, and and asked, are you Rob? Rob is my twin brother who was here last week. Uh, And I said, no, why? And I I knew where this was going because my whole life this was the case. Uh, Relieved, they said, oh, because we met your brother a few weeks ago at a marriage conference. And, And they were glad to hear that I wasn't cheating. Or he wasn't cheating. <laughs> he wasn't cheating on his wife, Kat, uh, and having a baby with Hannah because she was pregnant at that time as well. So it all made sense why they were staring at us because they thought I was someone else. They noticed that I was with a different per- woman and that she was pregnant. Uh, and so it, it's a funny story. And that situation was resolved and it ended well because there's no adultery going on. But there's a lot of different ways that that could have ended. And not to make light of it, adultery is a very serious sin. It's a serious sin against God and man. It it brings a lot of trials and conflicts in relationships. It goes against the very nature and character of who God is. Our God is a jealous God for his people. And what that means is God's jealousy is his holy commitment to his honor, glory, and love, because God is righteously jealous for his own glory, honor, and love. 
And so he demands and deserves the exclusive devotion and faithfulness and worship of his covenant people. It says of his covenant people in Israel in Deuteronomy 7 that he chose them. He chose them because he loved them. He set his love and affection upon them, not because of who they were or what they did, but because of his loving kindness. And he also loved them because he chose them. So he chose them because he loved them, and he loved them because he chose them. It comes full circle. Scripture says concerning his new covenant people, the church, in First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. First Peter 3.15 calls all believers to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, meaning that Christ is to be set apart from all else and be preeminent and supreme over all of our hearts and therefore in all of our lives. In chapter 4, verse 1, James talked about worldliness that comes from within our own hearts. That's where worldliness comes from. It's not something on the outside that comes in and corrupts something pure on the inside. Worldliness comes directly out of our own hearts. And it's manifested among us. It comes from within us, and it's seen and displayed and manifested among us. It's not from the outside in, but from the inside out, causing quarrels, causing conflicts, causing fights among the people of God because they are not pursuing and promoting and practicing wisdom that comes from above that results in peace and harmony and unity and love. Rather, they are evidencing qualities of worldly wisdom that brings disorder and every evil thing because of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition manifesting the pride of their sinful hearts. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we learned about the source and symptoms of quarrels and conflicts. We learned that it is a spiritual battle, a battle between the Holy Spirit within us, the new man, and the indwelling sin that remains in our flesh. There's a battle between pleasing God and sinfully pleasing ourselves. And so we have to properly address the desire going on in our hearts to see if it is a sinful desire and if it is to put it to death because we are to be spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, walking according to the spirit, people of God, because we have the word of God. We have knowledge of his word. We have the power of God to obey and apply it to our everyday lives in, in every area of our lives. That's applying wisdom from above. Wisdom connects to every part of the Christian life so that we can live in this world skillfully and devotedly and solely and distinctly for the Lord. And James is addressing what was happening among believers, the gathering of believers and connecting it with wisdom and worship. He asked them in chapter 3, verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? He wants them to think about it. He wants them to consider this question. He laid out the evident qualities of worldly wisdom and of heavenly wisdom. Then he asked them another question in chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? He wants to instruct as well as expose and confront how they were living uh, for themselves and for them to evaluate whether they're living according to the wisdom of this world, world or according to the wisdom from above. Now he asked them another question. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Do you not know that, believer? 
What wisdom you possess, pursue, and promote will impact all your relationships with one another. It will impact your spiritual growth. It will impact who and what you worship, which has to do with your relationship to God. These continual quarrels and conflicts that was happening among them are a demonstration of worldly wisdom and thus the worldliness that comes from their hearts, which the church is called to be separated from because we belong to God and we are the bride of Christ. The church is to be characterized again by love, unity, peace, joy, and harmony, not pride, not envy, not quarrels, not conflicts, not selfishness, and not friendship with the world. Now James will give a very heart-piercing rebuke and remind us of the undeserved grace of God because of who he is, and that ought to help us to respond rightly to our spiritually adulterous hearts. Once we see God for who he is and how gracious and loving he is to such sinners as us, we will respond rightly to our spiritually adulterous hearts that is prone to wander and serve this world. So in these verses, James confronts and reminds Christians what rolliness is, but also that God is jealous for us and gracious to us so that we would humble ourselves before him. So the first thing we'll see is the revealing rebuke in verse 4. The revealing rebuke. Verse 4 again. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James, if you've been following along, has been addressing these Jewish Christians who have been scattered because of persecution as my brethren. He's addressing them with this affectionate, intimate term, my brethren. He does so in chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1, verse 14, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 10, and verse 12. And he addresses them as my beloved brethren in chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 1, verse 19, chapter 2, verse 5. But notice how he addresses them now. He addresses them as you adulteresses. In the Greek, this is in the feminine form, which pictures the people of God being in covenant relationship with God. It represents a marriage relationship, and in the Old Testament, Israel is often described as God's unfaithful wife. Isaiah 54, verses 5 and 6 says, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of your of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20 says, Surely, as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. This speaks of the covenant relationship between God and his people and their idolatrous and adulterous hearts and actions. In Second Chronicles chapter 21, verse 11, Jehoram, one of the leaders, says, made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot and led Judah astray. Jeremiah 2, verse 20, describing Judah's apostasy. Remember, these are the people of God. They're in covenant relationship with him. He's chosen them to be his specific special nation, to serve him, to make him known. This is what it says of Judah's apostasy. For long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. For on every high hill and under every green tree, you have lain down as a harlot. Ezekiel 16, verses 25 through 29. Again, the unfaithfulness of Jerusalem. It says, you built yourself a high place at the top of every street 
and made your beauty abominable, and you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. You, play, you also played the harlot with the Egyptians, you, your lustful neighbors, and multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. Behold, now I have stretched out my hand against you and diminished your actions, your rations, and I delivered you up to the desire of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines who are ashamed of your lewd conduct. Even the Philistines are shocked by their behavior. Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of merchants, Chaldea. Yet even with this, you were not satisfied. And James uses this term, you adulteresses. This term that these Jewish Christians would understand to rebuke them about how they were living and what they were pursuing and worshiping and how it was affecting not only the church gathering, but also affecting their love for God. Jesus used it to describe a doubting and uncommitted and unbelieving people. Mark chapter 8, verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Matthew 12, verses 38 through 39 Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of of Jonah the prophet. The church, as we know in Scripture, is characterized as the bride of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2 says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Ephesians 5, 24 and 25, As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, and the love between Christ and his bride, and the commitment and the devotion that they ought to have to one another. Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Believers have died to the law through the body of Christ so that we might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. We have died to the law of sin that condemns us. We have been now joined in relationship, covenant relationship with Christ in order that we might live for him and bear fruit for God. We belong to God. We belong to God, not to ourselves, because we have been united to Christ. And so our full and undivided commitment is to be His. It's to be His. We are to love Him most. We are to serve Him first. We are to worship Him always. And though we may not, that may not be the longing and desire of our hearts 100% of our lives, we know that the flesh is weak. We know that our hearts are prone to wander. Oh Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Our sinful hearts constantly remind and reveal to us how easy it is for us to commit spiritual adultery towards the one who loves us perfectly and has only done what is eternally good for us. In in verse 4, James asked them, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? He's saying that by seeking friendship with the world, and world here means the world system and its philosophies and wisdom, the world's way of life, in other words. You're not just being unfaithful to God. But to do that is hostility toward God. 
Why? Because the prince of the power of the air, the lowercase g god of this world is Satan. And to flirt with and befriend and follow him is to mark yourself as an enemy of God. James says in the second half of verse 4, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And this is an indicative statement, meaning this is always true. It's a divine fact. You can't argue it. The word translated as wishes there in second half verse 4 is a settled desire. It's a settled desire to be friendly with the world. So this means not mere will, but will with premeditation. It's a choice that you intentionally make. It's this same word is used in James chapter 1 verse 18 of God's decision to birth us by the word of truth. It says there in the exercise of his will, there's that same word, he brought us forth by the word of truth. It's used in James chapter 3 verse 4 to talk about the decision of the ship's pilot. There it says, look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot, the word is, desires. To make this even clearer, James says that this person not only wishes this settled decision, but it says makes himself. This person makes himself an enemy of God. This is in the present tense, which points to a continuing condition. It's in the middle voice signifying that this is a self-chosen position. In other words, you don't unintentionally find yourself consumed by the things of this world. You can't wake up one day and say, how did I get here? How did this happen? You choose to do this, and you do this to yourself. You consistently and continually make deliberate choices to be a friend of the world, and thus you are in hostility with God and are an enemy of God. If This is the pattern characteristic of your life. Steve Lawson has said, quote, friendship with the world is hostility with God. Friendship with God means hostility from the world. You cannot be friends with both. Choose wisely. Adulteresses, hostility toward God, enemy of God. James is calling out those who may claim to be Christians but are not. And he's also waking up those who are genuine Christians to not be double-minded in their worship of God or to be double-souled in their affections because of because it's spiritual adultery towards the one who loves you most and greatest. Believers, as we all know, are susceptible to temporary worldliness, but we must resist it. We must turn from it. We must turn to Christ and resolve to follow him by the power of the Spirit. But there's a black and white distinction here as well. You either belong to God or you belong to this world. You are either an enemy or a friend of God. There's no in-between. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Romans 8, verses 6 through 9 says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, 
he does not belong to him. An enemy of God is fleshly, lives according to their flesh, their sinful pleasures and desires. An enemy of God is without the Spirit of God. And also, nowhere in Scripture does it refer to believers as enemies of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 23-25 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. And when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, and when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. John MacArthur has said, quote, An enemy of God cannot possibly be a believer, even an unfaithful believer, who, despite his unfaithfulness, will eternally be God's friend. As believers, we often stumble doing those things we know we should not and not doing things we know we should. But like Paul, we hate the sins we commit and desire our lives to be pure and holy. Christians can certainly be drawn into the world and its ways, think worldly thoughts and do worldly things, but they can never be happy or content there. Do you want to be a friend of the world? Are you content with worldliness? Are you an adulterer towards God? How foolish it is to be a friend of the world and make yourself an enemy of God when being an enemy of God characterizes an unbeliever. Do you not know, James asks, do you not know? Do you not know who God is and what he has done through Jesus Christ for you? Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? That's the revealing rebuke. Secondly, we'll look at verses 5 and 6, the reassuring reality, the bad news, and then the good news, the reassuring reality. And remember, this is written to believers. Verses 5 and 6, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's addressing believers here. But they're, again, very well maybe those who profess to be followers of Christ, but in fact are not. James shifts the focus here from rebuking our spiritual adultery against God to reminding us who God is. Because once we truly recognize that, we will turn to him in humble submission. Therefore, verse 5 is speaking about God's jealousy for his people who are indwelt by his Holy Spirit. This verse is one of the most debated verses in Scripture. Questions such as, is this a quotation or an allusion? Where is it from? Is this talking about the Holy Spirit or man's spirit? What is the subject? What is the object in the verse? Is this to be taken as a sinful desire or a righteous jealousy? Is this talking about man's depraved heart of worldliness or God's character despite man's heart of worldliness? So many questions. And there are good grammatical, good lexical good historical, contextual, scriptural supporting arguments for both of those positions and interpretations. However, one must come to a conclusion and conviction upon what it says, what it means, and how the meaning is to be applied. So we must be students who work to understand the text in its context. James has just mentioned the source of our pleasures that wage war in our members being a matter of the heart and the consequences of that leading to quarrels and conflicts. 
He's just called out these believers on their worldliness because of the wisdom they were evidencing in their lives. And to point them towards God, he gives scriptural instruction so that they would be convicted of their spiritual adultery and humble themselves by wholeheartedly giving themselves to him. Notice the beginning of verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? What is the purpose of scripture? It's to reveal who God is to us. It's to make God known to us. In fact, in Greek, no purpose or without reason is placed emphatically in front of the verse because, of course, Scripture speaks with purpose. Of course, it speaks with reason. What follows is not a direct quote, but rather a statement of the general teaching of Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that God is jealous for his people. He already addressed their hearts, and he already called them adulteresses. Now they need to be reminded who God is. They need to be pointed, their gaze needs to be pointed towards Jesus Christ. Exodus 34 verse 14 says, You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Exodus Exodus 20 verse 5, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And the question in verse 5, He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, is a declaration It's a declaration. God is jealous for those that are his because his spirit dwells in them and has taken up residence within them. Literally, it means causes to live. Causes to live, which points us to the picture of the new birth at regeneration. Notice also that he has made his spirit to dwell in us, referring only to Christians. Believers have the spirit of God. And that is not to be shared with affections for the things of this world or to serve the God of this world, Satan. You've been given the Spirit of God to serve and worship God. You've been given the Spirit of God so that he may sanctify you by his truth. Newness of life. Newness of life. Because God is a jealous God, he has given us his Spirit so that we would be empowered, enabled by his grace to live for him. So he wants all of our devotion all of our loyalty, and he's also the source and supplier of the power to make us loyal and devoted and faithful to him through our obedience to his word and will in dependence upon his spirit. Again, it comes full circle. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26. But I say to you, walk by the spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, anger, dispute, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Jesus Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. We belong to God, and he has chosen us to be the bride of Christ. He has given us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to be empowered and enabled to worship him. 
And now because we are the bride of Christ, we are to walk by the Spirit. We are to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And though we are, again, susceptible to worldliness and falling short of His glory and not offering Him the worship that He deserves and is worthy of, God does not abandon us. He does not abandon us. He enables us to persevere. God is a jealous God and a gracious God. Look at verse 6. This has to be one of the most encouraging verses in light of the surrounding context. It says, but he gives a greater grace. He gives a greater grace. He just called them adulteresses. Look at your sinful hearts. You're playing the the harlot. Now he says, but he gives a greater grace. Grace is given to us as a gift at salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, and not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But God's grace continues to be showered down upon us in sanctification to make us more like Christ. When we are pulled towards the world and are divided in our love and loyalty to him, he does not immediately cast us off, but continues to give us more grace as we turn to him. Romans 5, verse 20 says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Recognition of sin brings about the grace from God. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But We need to understand that God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. Look again at verse 6. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is Proverbs 3, verse 34, where it says, Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. This is 1 Peter 5, 5. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud. Opposed means to be arranged against. In other words, God stands in the way of the interests of the proud. He arranges himself against their interests so that their selfish ambition Their bitter jealousy leads to fighting and quarreling. They're never satisfied. They're never content. This is a present tense verb. God is continually standing in the way of the proud. And if you don't humble yourself, God will humble you. God is not only opposed to the proud, but he will deal with the proud. Proverbs 15, verse 24, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Throughout scripture, God makes it clear that he hates pride. He's opposed to pride and that he will deal with the proud man. Proverbs 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Mark 7, verses 21 to 23 says that pride comes from within the heart. Proverbs 21, verse 4 says that a proud heart is sin. Romans 1, verse 30 says that pride is part of a depraved mind. Pride blinds you, so you need others to help you see what you cannot see. 1 Timothy 3, 6 says that pride comes from the devil. 1 John 2, 16 says that pride is characteristic of the world. If you're friends with the world, that is evidence of pride because you see no need for God. 
but we have a God who is gracious and gives grace to the humble. And this begins with looking to Christ. It begins with looking to Christ who did not look out for his own personal interests, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of slave, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. We must look to Christ. We must look to Christ and remind ourselves of the love of Christ. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, verses 8 through 10, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than that, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Colossians 1.14, In Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Romans 8.1, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In Romans 8.39, Absolutely nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why would we make ourselves friends with the world, enemies of God, be in hostility with God, when this is the God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life? John 3.16, a God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.3. Why would we make ourselves friends with the world and go back to that? God gives saving grace sanctifying grace, sustaining grace, strengthening grace, a greater grace, because no matter how great our sin may be, his grace is greater still. But we also have to recognize that our hearts are still sinful and that we must continually humble ourselves and repent of our sins in obedience to his word and will for us. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us, to sanctify us, Confessing and turning from our sins conforms us more and more into the image of Christ. It shows our faithfulness and our commitment and our devotion and our loyalty and our love for him. We will fall short. We will stray into worldliness. But we must be quick to confess it and humble ourselves in repentance and turn to the righteous path that he calls us to live on, this path of walking in wisdom. So how should this impact our thinking? Recognize, recognize our idolatrous and adulterous hearts. The love of Christ and the grace of God. Recognize those three things. Your sinful heart, the love of Christ, the grace of God. How should this impact our obedience? Be faithful to him by keeping yourself unstained by the world. James says in chapter 1 verse 27. Keep yourself unstained by the world. How? Be faithful to him. That's how. How should this impact Grace Church? Don't try to make the church like the world in order to attract the world. If we see this distinct separation with being friends with the world and friends with God, 
why would we bring that into the church? How should this impact our worship? God's grace, the recognition, understanding, experience of God's grace ought to compel our obedience and faithfulness, not our guilt. Understand God's grace compels our love and obedience to him. It shouldn't be our our guilt. His commandments should not be burdensome. How should this impact our witness? When the world seeks to dethrone God and his truth, when it opposes the things of God, we must stand firm in his truth, in his word. We cannot give in to the world or think that we are to be friends with or accepting of the world in order to win people to Christ. When we do that, we not only invite hostility toward God and make ourselves an enemy of God, but we expose and reveal our adulterous hearts, what we really want. John Calvin has said, quote, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. Now this, as Christians, is speaking the truth in love, hearing a false claim of, about God and gently in wisdom speaking to them about the truth of what God says, not going out there forcefully, violently attacking people or the, or the people of this world. Remember, they're without the spirit of God. They're without the wisdom of God. They are enemies of God. They're in hostility toward God. Compassion, love, ought to compel our witness to them. And this connects to our hearts for God. If we truly love God, anything that goes against him or opposes him should affect us. It should cause us to stand firm, not to compromise, and to speak up. Proverbs six sixteen through 19, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. The first in that list is haughty eyes. A proud man. But we know that God is jealous for his people. He deserves and is worthy of having our wholehearted devotion and commitment to him. Not a double-minded, double-souled, doubting, divided, deluded heart that seeks the world and the wisdom of this world. And yet God's gift of grace is available to his people when they humble themselves before him confession, repentance. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, greatest treasure of my longing soul, my God, like you there is no other, true delight is found in you alone. Your grace, a well too deep to fathom, your love exceeds the heaven's reach, Your truth, a fount of perfect wisdom, my highest good and my unending need. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, may all my days bring glory to your name. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Thou first, high king of heaven, my delight. When we see and understand who God is, when we behold him as he has revealed himself, we will bow down before him in humble submission and worship him, knowing how much he loves us, how much he is jealous for us, how much he forgives us, how much grace is given to us. May we not seek friendship with the world, 
and the wisdom of this world that will only draw us away from him? But would we rather give ourselves wholeheartedly in greater devotion and loyalty to him by walking according to the wisdom from above? This is what God demands of us, commands of us, desires for us. And this is what God would want for us to do. We are his people. We belong to him. He's given us his spirit to assure that truth, that we will be eternally his. We've been given the spirit to empower us to live for him, to obey him, to fight against the flesh that would want the things of this world. God has given us everything we need to be a faithful follower of Christ. But we must resist worldly temptation. We must resist our sinful desires within our own hearts. And we must wholeheartedly seek to choose to obey him and live for him. This is a hard passage to to hear that though we're saved by grace, we're eternally his, how easy it is for us to become adulteresses. Strong word. And we often don't think of our relationship with God in that in those terms, that when we disobey him, when we seek the things of this world, when we seek our own pleasures, that we're committing spiritual adultery. When we think about just individual relationships within marriages and how grave that is of a sin and the consequence of that, think about that in terms of our relationship to God. How much greater? How much greater? And also God is perfect. God loves us more than anything else, than anyone else. And yet we can still turn our backs to him. We can still see more contentment in other things, in other people. But as Christians, again, spirit-empowered, he gives a greater grace. We must seek him. We must depend upon him. We must continually go back to the gospel, look to Christ and what he's done for us, humble ourselves before him and declare and, and praise him for who he is and continually turn to him so that we may walk obedient lives for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth uh, that diagnoses our hearts, also gives us instruction and the solution to our sin problem. It's only found in Jesus Christ who humbled himself, came here so that he may die and be exalted. And it's the same for us as we live these, this life in this fallen world with our own sinful nature and condition. We must also humble ourselves that we may be exalted when you come. Father, help us to obey you, help us to look to you, help us to treasure you above all else. Really increase our love and our faith in you so that we may walk more closely to you and with you and less in this world. We thank you for this time. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.